This week, Alexandra asked me to get something for her. And that's not out of the ordinary. Sometimes she asked me to get stuff for her. But this time she said, we were at home, and she said, hey, uh, can you go into my makeup bag, and can you get me my exfoliator? And I said, sure. So I go looking. I don't know which one's her makeup bag and which one's just another bag and then another bag. She's got a million bags. I don't know which one's the makeup bag. I finally come back and ask, hey, uh, which one's the makeup bag? She said, oh, it's, it's the black one. It's under the sink. So I, so I grab it and I pull it out and I'm looking for the exfoliator, right? You guys know about the exfoliator, right? You know exactly what that, yeah, neither did I. So I'm digging through this bag. Like, okay, what, what, what thing in here exfoliates? So I'm looking, I'm seeing like these tube things like mascara, I think is what it was. And um, uh, these little egg things, okay? You know about the egg things, right? So then I go back and I say, okay, so what's the exfoliator? And she's like, it's one of the eggs. So I'm like, great, it's one of the eggs. So I go back, there's two eggs, okay? There's two eggs. And she's like, it's the one that's, uh, that's orange or coral. You said coral, right? Both of them look coral to me, okay? There was the red one that was a little bit more reddish pink. Then there was one that was a little more reddish orange. And I'm like, coral could be either one of those. So we had this back and forth. I feel like I went from her to the makeup bag to her to the makeup bag like three or four times. And um, then I found it. The, exfoli the exfoliator, by the way, everybody, if you don't know, the exfoliator is the egg thing with the bigger holes that happens to be a little bit more on the orangish red scale than the pinkish red egg exfoliator, okay? So this was an experience for me. It took me a while. It reminded me, like, when I was a kid, my dad would sometimes tell me to look for tools, and when I didn't know what it was, he would kind of, like, shame me that I didn't know. What, you don't know what that kind of tool is? If it's a snake, it would have bit you. Your parent ever said that? They send you to go look for something, and it's like, dude, it's, like, right in front of your face. Like, how do you not see it? It's like, well, I didn't know. I guess I was looking in the wrong place. No, I was looking in the right place, and it was right in front of me. I just didn't know what it was, and I couldn't see it, and I saw it, but I didn't see it. You ever, like, lose something or whatever? It's like, you, it's right in front of your face, and you don't even notice it, right? If it was a snake, it would have bit you, okay? That idea, that concept of something's, like, right in front of your face, and you just don't even notice it, that is what's been happening to Jesus the entire time we've been reading the Gospel of John. People are seeing him, and it's like he's right in front of their face, but they don't get it. He does all these amazing things, and it's right in front of them, and they're like, what's an exfoliator? Uh, Actually, they don't ask that. But they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's right in front of them. And sometimes they're amazed by what Jesus does, but they don't get it. Because it's right in front of their face, but they don't understand. Today, we find the end of that. This is basically, I want you to imagine this. This is the last sermon from Jesus. This is the last public sermon. He has conversations with his disciples, but never again will he speak in public after this point. When he talks in front of the crowds and all, the, all those things, this is it. This is his last time, and he's right in front of them, and he says, hey, guys, I'm right here. You can believe in me or not, but this is like your last chance for this kind of dialogue. So I want us to check this out. John chapter 12 is where we're going to look. John 12, in the Gospel of John, this is the end. I think that in the synoptic Gospels, there's some other times where um, Jesus talks to the crowds, but John says this is, this is it for what he's covering. John 12, we're going to look at verse 12. You guys might remember last time we looked at the beginning of John 12 and we looked at this story of this lady named Mary who took this really expensive oil and she poured it 
on Jesus' head and on his whole body, basically, and so that he'd smell really good. And I don't think that was an insult to say, hey, you smell bad, Jesus. But I think it was this kind and nice thing. And Jesus said, it's like she did this and prepared him for his burial. So he's dropping all these hints to everybody that he's talking to that this, this is the week. This is the week it's all going to happen. This, my hour's coming, that, that I'm going to die, that I'm going to suffer. That's all been happening. And then he presents himself basically as the king of Israel. And he does that in a way that you, by, you guys might know um, from the Palm Sunday things we did with kids ministry. Remember that? Palm Sunday things where um, Tori Canava always, always comes in because um, he's I, the most Christ-like person um, in appearance-wise, I guess, at our church. Um, and whatever, I guess, because he got the cool beard. So he'd always come in on the donkey for you guys. You guys remember this, right? He'd come in on a donkey, and it was supposed to show like, hey, this is what it's like when Jesus came in to the city of Jerusalem. Well, that's about to happen right here. And he's going to have these public appearances, and he's going to actually, I think we're covering something like three or four days of time in the text today. So it's not all one scene we're going to see. It's going to feel like a lot of different things all at once. We're really covering like four sermons worth of stuff. So we're going to have a lot to write down. But all of it sums up to this. Jesus is the king and he comes into this town. And the people there were supposed to embrace him. They should have said, yes, this is our king. The Old Testament promised he'd come. We need to accept him and embrace him. And some of them did and some of them didn't. Some embraced Jesus and some fought against Jesus. And then there were others that embraced parts of what Jesus said, but didn't embrace all of it. And because they didn't embrace Jesus for who Jesus said he was, they ended up rejecting him in the end. And that same option is basically on the table for everyone here. Jesus is presented. And I want you to think about it like this. How many times has Jesus been presented to you in this gospel of John? Right? I don't think for many of you, this is your first time here. A lot of you have heard a lot of sermons in the gospel of John. And it's like Jesus is presenting himself over and over and over again to us. And the question is, are we going to embrace him as the king or are we going to turn the other way? Are we going to worry about other stuff more? That's kind of the question that you should be thinking through today. Have I embraced Jesus as the king? We need to decide to do that. So check this out. Verse 12. Figuring out the timeline here is kind of hard. It says at the beginning of the chapter, it was six days before the Passover. And I think what that means, the Passover would start on Thursday evening. So I think six days before the Passover was the Friday before. So I think this dinner table conversation probably happened on Friday. So we studied that last week. Verses 9 to 11 talk about how the Jews were gathering in this city. And I think they didn't get there on the Sabbath. I think they were gathering on the Sabbath. They probably got into the city of Jerusalem on, on Friday night so that they could be there for the Sabbath. So they could rest there starting on Friday night. So I think they're all gathering in the city. And verse 9, 10, and 11 talk about how they are, are all talking with one another. So I think that's Saturday. So I think it says for verse 12, the next day, I think we're talking about Sunday, which is why we get that idea of Palm Sunday. We think this actually happened on a Sunday. It says, the next day, the large crowds that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So remember, Jesus is not in Jerusalem. Jesus is in another village two miles away from Jerusalem, the city called Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It said they found out he was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So this is looking pretty good so far, right? It's looking like these people are really embracing Jesus. They're seeing him as the king. They're even quoting the Bible there. They're quoting Psalm chapter 118. Like that's a very famous Psalm in the Old Testament that's talking about the 
Davidic or the Messianic, the, the king of Israel, and looking forward to a new one. So they're making these connections, but the problem is, even in that text, they're only making a couple of the connections. They're making the connection that, hey, if this is really the king of Israel, maybe he can save us from the Romans. And they're making that connection. But the problem is, they're not making the connection with the rest of that chapter that says he's going to be the stone that the builders rejected who will become the cornerstone. They're not making all the connections. They're making some of them. So they're embracing him a little bit. And it says, and Jesus, verse 14, found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Right? So it says that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy here. Not only were the Jews there quoting Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118, you also have John the Apostle saying, look, he's sitting on a donkey. See how that fulfills Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9? This is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is the Old Testament king who's coming in. That's the idea. That's what we should be getting when we read this. That's what he's trying to say. Problem is, just like they see him being that donkey, donkey rider who comes into town as the king, the problem is they're seeing him as that, Zechariah 9, 9. They're not seeing him as the same person in Zechariah 12.10 and Zechariah 13.1. I'll just read those two passages for you. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David or the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him, whom they, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. What this is saying is at some point, the people are going to look at the person who's pierced for them and they're going to find mercy when they realize with sadness that they harmed somebody. Who is that talking about? Right? Clearly, that's talking about Jesus. So I think the theme that John is trying to show us is, look, they're getting it a little bit. They're starting to get it, but they're not getting the big picture. The whole theme of misunderstanding, I mean, think about how many times the people see Jesus Jesus says, hey, you should embrace me. And they're kind of like, ah, I don't really get it. That happens over and over again, every scene in the gospel of John. And honestly, that happens in church today too. It probably happens here in this room. It probably happens in the narrow. It happens in small groups. We talk about God. We talk about Jesus. We talk about what he offers, eternal life. And the problem is a lot of people are like, I, I, I don't get it though. And you can either take that misunderstanding and say, oh, well, I need to I need to talk to God about this. I need to search the scriptures. Or you can say, well, I'm not going to worry about it. And that's what the people do. At least some of them anyway. Look at verse 16. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Even the whole predictive prophecy, they didn't get it. But when Jesus was glorified, when he is resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that had been done to him. And the crowds that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So at this point, you've got this big group of people who heard about this miracle, who knew that Lazarus died and saw Lazarus living. It says they bore witness, which means they told everybody, hey, my friend Lazarus, you, sh you guys should have seen it. He was dead. He was dead for four days, but now he's alive. And that's only because this guy, Jesus came. Clearly, he's something special. Clearly, I bet he is that king that the Old Testament promises because he has power over death. So these crowds started to bear witness. Verse 18 says, the reason why the crowds went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So if you think about it like this, the miracle, the healing of Lazarus, not the healing, the raising of Lazarus was like the spark 
It was the beginning that brought all these crowds around Jesus, where Jesus makes this final offer. Then he retracts and he goes away. Verse 19, the Pharisees got mad at this. They said, you see, we're gaining nothing. Guys, they got the Pharisees together. Guys, we're not gaining anything. Think about it. All these people are going after Jesus. It says, look, the world has gone after them. It's obviously exaggerating. The whole world wasn't following Jesus right here, but that's what it felt like to the Pharisees. Remember last time we said, don't trade anything for Jesus because the Pharisees, they wanted their place in the kingdom. They wanted their place in their kingdom right then. And they could not embrace Jesus because that would have meant they would have had to humble themselves. All this is so clear. Jesus comes into town as the king. Some people recognize him, some people don't. And that's the thing that we have to see for ourselves when Jesus is presented to us, okay? Jesus has not come through this door riding on a donkey. Even if he did, you probably wouldn't believe it was him. Think about it, right? That would be weird. But he has been presented to you. Think about all the times that you've listened to sermons from the Gospel of John or from maybe in the edge or maybe in kids ministry and you've heard Jesus proclaim to you. It's like he's riding into the room through this text and he's right here. It's like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna look to him as the king or you're not gonna look to him as the king? You're gonna wait till you're in high school to look to him as the king or you're gonna look to him as the king now? Point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. Recognize Jesus as your king. Recognize Jesus as your king. See, that's a little bit harder than just recognizing Jesus as an important person. If you talk to people at school, that's what they might say. They might say, well, I think Jesus was a good teacher. People in other religions, other traditions might say, yeah, I think Jesus had some good advice. And while that's true, that's not all of what's true. It's more than that. Some people even recognize, and I think some of you might fall into this category. You think that Jesus really is who he said he is. You probably believe that. If I you know, had to make you choose. Do you think Jesus really is who he said he is? You probably say yes, he probably is. And he said he's the king. You might believe that he's the king, but for you, day to day, hour to hour, like are you treating him like he's your king, that he's actually in charge? Or is that just something we say? Is that something we say where we say, oh, well, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's the boss. He's the Lord. Yeah, he's, he's the Christ. But I mean, I kind of get to make the decisions about what I do. That's the problem with most people that go to church. Most people, I really believe, most people that go to church, at least in our country, they say Jesus is the king, but they don't live like it. I hope that's not true of most people in this room. I hope many of you actually treat Jesus like he is the king. I said that the people under, only understood half of it, okay? They're quoting this passage and we kind of briefly passed over it, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. I want us to look at this passage. Turn back in the left of your Bibles, well, kind of in the middle of your Bibles, Psalm 118. It's this big prophecy. It's a song that they were supposed to sing. Actually, it's funny. This song, Psalm 118, was one of the psalms that they sang at the Passover. Specifically, at the Passover meal, they were supposed to sing this song. And I actually think that Jesus quotes the song multiple times during the last week of his life. They quote it, but he quotes it too. We're going to jump in the middle. Look at verse 19. And I want you to picture what Jesus is doing in John chapter 12 and think of this. Because I think that's what the people were referencing. It was a reference. Back to this. It says, this is Psalm 118 verse 19. He says, open to me the gates of of righteousness, that I may enter through them to give thanks to the Lord. 
This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we, pr- we pray, give us success. Save us. That's the word Hosanna. It's the same idea right there. So these people are quoting this, and there's, see the gate illustrations? Like, oh, the gates. Like, Jesus comes through the gates. I think that's kind of what they're getting at. They're like the king's coming through the gates, and they're seeing Jesus come through the gates on this donkey, which is predicted in another passage, Zechariah 9. But it's like he's coming through. He's the stone that the builders rejected. See how they they don't understand that part though, right? It's like, well, they're going to be the rejectors. The people who are embracing Jesus as the king, at least superficially, a lot of those people will end up being rejectors of him. Maybe not all of them, but certainly some of them. Verse 25 says, save us. That's Hosanna. Save us now. It's actually a really urgent thing. That word Hosanna means save us now. It might have meant just a general... Nice statement, but I hope, and I think that some people really knew what it meant from the Old Testament. Maybe not everybody who shouted it. Maybe some people just followed the crowd, just like when people start chanting stuff now, right? The crowd just kind of gets in on it, and a lot of people start chanting, even if they don't know what they're saying. But I hope that the people who started this chant, I, I hope they understood what they were saying. Look at verse 26. Now it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they quote. They don't just say, Hosanna. They say, save us now, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This king that was promised in the Old Testament. This king, you're him. They start to get it. And they say, the Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Then he says something interesting in this text. It says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's foreign language to us. But what that means is take that, take that lamb, take that goat, bind him up and let's bring him to the altar. What, what is Jesus doing in this week? He's going into this town like this offering. He's going in like this offering and he's, he is the sacrifice that's being bound with cords. It's going to be taken up and sacrificed for his people. See, what I'm saying is I think the people understood half of this. They didn't understand all of this. They understood Zechariah 9.9, and I quoted Zechariah 12.10. But let me quote another verse from Zechariah. Zechariah 13, verse 1. Here's what that, this says. It says, On that day there shall be a fountain, a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. See, what they wanted was the king. They wanted a king because they wanted a ruler. They wanted someone who would come in and fix their problems. Their biggest problem, which in their mind was Rome, was the political suppression that they felt. That wasn't their biggest problem though. Their biggest problem was they had sin and uncleanness. And notice that when Jesus comes, he doesn't come just to be some political leader. Actually, he didn't come to be much of a political leader at all the first time. Most of that saved for his second coming. But his first time, he was this festal sacrifice that was bound. He was the stone that the builders rejected. It would become the cornerstone. He's all of that. These people wanted a savior from Rome. 
Okay, they wanted a savior from their problems, but they didn't recognize their biggest problem. And that's the thing. A lot of people today use Jesus just like that. And maybe, maybe you do too. Maybe you use Jesus to make you less worried. Maybe you use Jesus to give you purpose in life. Maybe you use Jesus to give you a friend group. Maybe you use him for that. But you're not recognizing him as the king. There's a difference there. And that's what they did. They were trying to use Jesus to get what they wanted. But the problem is, Jesus said, just like he said in John 6, there's something else that you actually need, that you should want, that you might not even realize about yourself. And that's that you need to be forgiven of your sins. Like, that's the biggest deal. They needed a spiritual savior, not just a political figure. That's what they needed, okay? What do we need? Do we need just a political figure? No, we need a spiritual savior too. We have a similar problem because we've sinned too. We need to be forgiven too. Sometimes when I ask students, and not just students, I mean to pick on you, but like anybody, and say, hey, what does it mean to put your faith in Jesus? What does that mean to put your faith in Jesus? You know what most of the time I hear people say? Oh, well, to put your faith means that you believe, just to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. And that's a good start, right? You should believe Jesus is who he said he is. Some people say, yeah, faith in Jesus. What that means is faith that God is really there, that God's real. That's a good start. But they believed that. They believed God was there. Some of them even believed Jesus was who he said he was. A lot of people today say, what it means to put your faith in Jesus is just to trust that he'll take care of everything in your life, okay? That's what they were doing too. They were placing their faith in Jesus to fix their problem. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fix a different problem. Yes, you should put your faith in Jesus. But when we talk about that, we're not just talking in a general way to just view Jesus as important or to ask him to fix our problems. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fix one particular problem. Does Jesus fix more problems than that? Yeah, but there's one thing that's most important and that's what you have to go to him for. So when we say you need to repent of your sins, that means turn from your sins, and place your faith in Jesus, what we're saying you should do is please ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to take your sins away. And then when you ask, don't ask thinking, well, maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. No, ask and, and confidently say, yeah, I know that he can. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. And that's what it means to see him as your king. But they only got half of it. I think the problem is a lot of us only get half of it. I think Jesus, yeah, we should put our faith in Jesus, but that really means like to just trust him in everything. But when you trust him in everything, usually we're trusting him in nothing. That's the problem for most people who say that. We need to put our trust specifically in something he did for us. Back in John chapter 12, I want us to turn back there to see the next scene. That was the first scene. The next scene starts in verse 20. John 12, 20. Let's all turn back there in our Bibles. Let's all see it. There was a group of people that wanted to see Jesus. And this is like a good step. These are people who are actually not Jewish people. They're Greek people, which doesn't necessarily mean they're from Greece. It just means they're Gentiles. Some of them might have been from Greece. It says they're actually from this area of Bethsaida. Philip was from there. And it seems like there were some Greeks that might have been from that area too. So, so, among, the Greek, or, so among those who went up to, the, to worship at the festival, at the feast, were some Greeks, some Gentiles. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And he has a, people make a lot of this, but Philip is one of the only apostles who has like a Greek name. So 
If you're looking for the person who kind of was like you in the crowd, it'd be like, well, Philip, he's kind of like the Greeks. Maybe. I don't know if he looked like the Greeks, but certainly his name was more like the Greeks. So they came up to him and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's a good request, right? We want to we know more about him. That's a great request. It's not a saving request just to see him more. That's not a saving request, but that's a good step in the right direction. So Philip and, went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So now they got two of them coming up to Jesus, telling them this. Before they even got there, look what Jesus says. Jesus answered them. Now, who's he talking to? Okay. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to the Greeks? It does not say that. It says he's talking to them, which probably, unless the Greeks came with Philip and Andrew, is probably Philip and Andrew and the other disciples. Maybe the Greeks are in the audience too, but it doesn't necessarily say that. Jesus answered them, which probably means Andrew and Philip. He's talking to Andrew and Philip. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, that idea gets used a lot in John 12. So I want us to stop for a second and understand what that means, for him to be glorified. Whenever Jesus references his death and his resurrection, a word that he likes to use is that's when the Son of Man is glorified, okay? He also says that when he does that, when he dies on the cross and when he rises again, guess who else receives glory? The Father. So he says in that moment, in this amazing moment, it's like so important. It's like it's the, it's the center of all of history is this moment that all of the Old Testament led up to this moment and that for all the church age, all we'll be talking about is looking back to this moment. There's a lot of attention in history that's focused on this moment. He says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. The real purpose of why I came, it's, it's about to be fulfilled. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Imagine you have a thing of wheat or whatever that gets cut down. It kind of lays on top of the soil. Is anything going to grow there? No. What has to happen is it has to die and go underneath the soil, which is almost, it's like this poetic way of saying, yeah, I have to die and be buried. And then if I do that, what's going to happen? Well, then it'll bear much fruit. Now he's talking about himself. He says, I cannot just come here and say, hey, all your sins can be forgiven. Jesus says, that's not how this works. If it worked that way, I didn't have to come. What I'm about to do is about to die. I'm about to give my life as a sacrifice for these people. Just like I said in Psalm 118, where it says he's like that festal sacrifice. Look at verse 25. Now he shifts from his life to his disciples' life. Now he's like, if you want to follow me, look at this. It says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he's saying there is, if you love your life now, and you have to be in charge now, and you have to be your own king, like point number one said, now, you're going to lose it. If you want to sin, you want to do your own thing now, you will lose that. But he says, if you hate his life in the world, reject it, say, hey, my life in the world, although it could be great, it could be fun, it could be whatever, I'm going to say, that's not as important to me as the next life. So he says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in this position where he's about to be sacrificed. What Jesus is saying is just like I'm going to be sacrificed for my people, I'm going to ask my people to sacrifice for me. 
Just exactly, if you went to main service, it's exactly what we talked about in main service today. Same, same idea. Jesus is very clear about that all throughout the Gospels. Look what it says next. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's weird. Like, think about that. If anyone serves me, if you serve Jesus, what does it say? God will honor you. That word honor is the same idea as to give a compliment or to give some adoration or even worship, right? It sounds weird to say that God worships us, right? And it's not like in a, that we become God and God becomes like us. No, but God will give good. He'll honor. He'll do good to people who are serving him. Now verse 27, my soul is troubled. Now something is really bothering me, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? I know that I'm about to die, I think is what he's getting at here. I'm really troubled about that. I mean, this is really going to be painful. This is going to be hard. He says, but what, what, what am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to say, God, like, take me away from this? No, he says, this is the whole reason. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. This is the whole reason I came to earth. Verse 28, Jesus says to the, the Father, he says, Father, glorify your name. So he directs that prayer to God. Then look what happens. This is amazing. People forget that this happens. Does then a voice came from, hem, from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So after Jesus just offers this quick prayer to God, God speaks, he yells. There's this loud voice that comes. He says, I have glorified it. I have glorified my name. And guess what? I will glorify it again. I've shown my glory throughout the world in the Old Testament through all the amazing things I've done. And also, I'm going to glorify it again. You know how I'm going to do that? Through Jesus' suffering and death. That there's something about that that will bring glory to God. Verse 29, then the crowds that stood there and heard it, the crowds, so the outside people, not the inside people, not the people who understood, but the people who were always misunderstanding, they said it thundered. They thought there must have been some lightning and thunder because whatever happened right there was loud. It was a big, loud sound. Others said an angel must have spoken to him. Again, do you see how these people are just not getting it? It's like, no, no, no. The father sent a voice and boom, it was there. It wasn't an angel. It wasn't thunder. It was God speaking. Verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake. Not for me. Not for my sake. I, I know God's there. This is not for my sake. Verse 31 now. It says, this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan and his power is going to be removed. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Lifted up from the earth is this, and again, like symbolic language. What is Jesus about to do? He's about to literally be lifted up on the earth, on that cross. Just like we learned from John chapter 3, when it said the Son of Man is lifted up. It says next, he said this to show by what kind of death he was about to die. He's focused on his death in this conversation. So the crowds answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. We heard from the law, from the Old Testament, that Messiah won't die. So they understood what he was saying. They got that part. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They started to see, wait, are you saying you're going to be crucified? So who is the Son of Man? I don't think they're asking Jesus, are you the son of man? But they're saying, what do you make of that? Doesn't the Old Testament say that the Messiah won't die? It says that he'll take the power, Isaiah 9, 
and the, of the increase of his government and of his reign and power, it'll be of no end. He'll reign forever, forevermore. Second Samuel 7 promises that this king is going to reign forever. What do you mean he's going to die? Are you, are you going to die? Like, are you, are you changing the plan here? It's kind of, I think, what they're asking. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. It's like, you guys have not made a decision to follow me yet. It's like, you're in the darkness and you've got the light and look, the light's about to go out. I'm taking the light somewhere else. I'm taking it to other people. In fact, even that idea of light, the Old Testament uses it, that when the light is in Israel, for a time, he gives Israel, this, this group of people, an opportunity to embrace it. Then guess what's gonna happen in the book of Acts? Where's that light gonna go? Where's the gospel gonna be preached more to everybody else, the Gentiles, like the Greeks who started this conversation. I think that's what he's starting to get at. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. Please just believe in the light that you might become sons of light. That should remind us back to John 1, where it says everyone who believed in him, he gave the right to be called sons, daughters, family members of God. I think the big idea here from this section, I know it's a long section, verses 20 to 36, is that Jesus is going to offer his life as a sacrifice. And what he expects for the people that follow him and really make him their king, he wants you to give your life and spend your life for his people and for him. That's point number two. Spend your life for Jesus who gave his life for you. Spend your life for Jesus who gave his life for you. It might not look like you dying on a cross. It might not look like that. But I know what it certainly looks like. It looks like you not being your own king. You giving your life. And I think that, that's a helpful way, that word I used on purpose, spend. I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. It's like you've got your money. And at Christmas time, you've got your money, right? You've got more money. And it's like you take your money and instead of spending it on you and all the stuff that you can get, it's like you're supposed to take all the money, so to speak, that God's given you, all the stuff, all the resources, all, all of what you have, and you're supposed to take that and not spend it on you. You're supposed to spend it on Jesus, okay? How do you spend your, your life on Jesus? How do you spend your, you know, your life money on Jesus? Well, I mean, part of it has to do with your money, but that's not the main point. The main point is that you give your time and your energy and your effort serving him. How, how does Jesus expect people to serve him? Right? Does anybody know what John 13, the next chapter is about? Jesus gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet and he says, that's what I want you to do too. So I want you to serve the church. I want you to think right now, what needs does Jesus have? What needs does he have? You say, well, I mean, not really any. He's in heaven, I'm not. He's with God, I'm not. He's, he is God, I'm not. So I guess he doesn't really have any needs. But repeatedly throughout the Bible, he calls his people to serve others of his people. That, that is what Jesus needs. He needs you to serve other people. He needs you to serve your siblings and your parents and your small group and your church. That's what Jesus would expect us to do. First John chapter 3, verse 16 says it a lot like this. It says that Jesus gave his life for us. Here's, I'll read it. It says, by this we know love. This is what love looks like. That Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay our lives down for the brothers. That's what we should do. And then it gets really practical. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, we got people in our small group and they need stuff. We see that need. Yet if that person closes his heart, and I love how that's like 
when, when you're about to give something, it's like, oh, they need it. Oh, they should do that. I should give them that thing that I have that I don't really need. And I, I've got more of those and I can give them that. And it's like, you're about to give. And he says, but maybe you close your heart and say, no, I'm not going to give it to them. He says, if you do that, if you constantly are closing your heart against people who need stuff in your life, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. That's a good start, but that's not the completion of it. He says, let us also love in deed and in truth. That's what Jesus basically asks these people to do and tells them, this is what it's going to look like. You really want to follow me? Greeks, Jews, Americans, right? You really want to follow me? This is what it's going to look like. Spending your life on me. Saying that because I'm the king, I'm the real king. Not just the king that's going to solve your problems, because that's the problem. Like, that's what they thought. They thought, oh, Jesus is good for my life because he'll solve a couple problems, but I still kind of get to be in charge of my life. Jesus says, that's not the type of king I am. I'm the type of king that asks to be in charge of your life and doesn't just ask from a position of like, oh, could I please? Like, no, he's asking and he's telling. I need to be in charge of your life. He said this, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. You've got wants and desires. Deny those. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's exactly what Jesus says here. But then he says something interesting. This is, I think, the most important verse here to help us understand. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? What would it profit you if you gained all the world? If you got every single thing you wanted, I mean, really think about it. Every last thing you wanted, every pair of shoes, every article of clothing, every bit of talent, every bit of fame, every bit of popularity, every bit of good looks, every bit of sport talent, every bit of success and wins, and you got every last thing you wanted. Here's what Jesus asked. What would it profit you if you got all that stuff and went to hell? Is that worth it? He says, no, it wouldn't profit you anything. But here Jesus is again offering life to people, saying, take it. Here's life. I, I'm offering it to you. And what do they do? Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. Look back in the passage. Look at verse 37. Middle of verse 36. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That right there is like, like the scary music playing in the background right there. He hid himself. He was done. That was his last sermon to these people publicly. For the rest of the time, he's only really going to talk to his people. Starting in verse 13, or chapter 13, he's only going to really talk to his disciples. Then guess what? When Jesus is dying on the cross, does he give all these big sermons to all the people saying you should repent and believe? No. He's silent. He's done. He's paying for sins at that point. His time for offering salvation to these people at that point is done. They get a new opportunity when Peter and James and John start preaching in the book of Acts, but Jesus' time for offering is done. Look what John says. He says in verse 37, though, this is the apostle John, the narrator coming in. You ever watch a movie and the narrator starts talking, right? They start breaking in as like the, the person who knows the story. They start talking. That's what happens here. John starts writing. He says, so he had done many signs before him, those miracles. They still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is an Old Testament prophecy. It says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who really understands what Jesus was doing? 
Isaiah 53, 1, that's what's being quoted here, says only some. Who's really seen it? Another passage in verse 39, he says, therefore, they could not believe, which, like pause there, they could not believe or they would not believe. That says they could not believe. Why could they not believe? Because they saw those signs, because they rejected him, rejected him, then they lost their opportunity. They could not believe. I don't think that means they would not believe. I think their time for would not had passed. Now they were in the time of could not. Because they, they said no too many times. So God said, fine, done. Isaiah again said, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It's like God is saying, okay, you've rejected me so many times. Fine, I'm gonna make it hard for you. I'm gonna make it impossible for you to embrace me now. I will just harden your heart. That might sound unfair, right? That might sound hard, but the problem is we're talking about people who have heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. And then God says, okay, your time of would not is now a time of could not. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking of Jesus, and spoke of him. It's like Isaiah was looking through time, seeing all this go, go on. Verse 42, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. That's like a left turn, like, wait a minute. Wait, you mean some of the Sadducees and Pharisees and officers and Roman officials and all these people, they believed in Jesus? What did we talk? I thought they weren't believing in him. So they believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So it's like they wanted to believe in Jesus, but they're like, well, but these people won't like me if I do. They did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. That might not sound a big, like a big deal, but you know, imagine if you lost all your friends by making one big life change to follow Jesus. You couldn't see your family anymore. You couldn't see your friends anymore. You might be homeless. You might lose everything. Like that's the real problem that they were facing. If I really trust in Jesus, I might lose everything, which is why in Acts 2, they are sharing houses because a lot of them are homeless because a lot of them lost their families, especially if a mom or a kid in a family decided to be a Christian, they lost their husbands. They lost everything. They, they were kicked out, a lot of them. It says, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it because they would have been put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, John says the real reason why. This, I want you to think about yourself here. Is this true about me? Verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's why. That's the heart motivation. Like they didn't believe and they, they were afraid. Like that's kind of the exterior. We could see that. But what's going on inside their hearts? Why, why would they not embrace him? It says because they love the glory that comes from man. They would rather have their friends like their post. They would rather have acceptance. They'd rather have more friends. They'd rather have a bigger friend circle. They'd rather have deeper relationships with their friends and their family than know God. That was like their higher priority. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's a term for that that we often use, and I'm going to use it now, uh, a people pleaser, okay? A people pleaser. What this says is these people were people pleasers. They wanted to be pleasing. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted to be embraced. You know, most people today are also people pleasers. That's their highest priority. 
if I'm accepted and I'm liked by other people. Point number three, I want you to be a Jesus follower, not a people pleaser. Be a Jesus follower, not a people pleaser. Because sometimes you can't have both. Sometimes you cannot have both. So you have to choose, basically. And that's what Jesus is calling them to do. But at this point, the turning point came in the middle of verse 36. Jesus went away. He says, but now, John explains why they didn't repent. And I wonder if, you know, we knew everything, we knew everybody's hearts. I wonder how many people this verse would be describing just perfectly to a T. They love the glory that comes from man. They would rather be praised by people, by their friends, by their peers, then do what God wants them to do. I want you to imagine uh, you're trying to pick an outfit, okay? An outfit, what to wear. And you wear something and your mom comes up to you and says, whoa, I really like that shirt. Okay. Some of you are like, okay, we're changing because if my mom likes it, then it's not stylish, right? Uh, some of you. Others of you are like, yeah, that's cool. Then you come to the narrow, okay? And your crush comes up to you. Just randomly. Like, this is, this is miraculous. The boys finally start talking to the girls. Um, and say, wow, I really like that shirt, okay? Now you've got your mom and your crush <laughs> who both like what you're wearing. Right? And guys, you're like, would a girl really come up to me and say that? Again, girl, girl, would a boy really come up? We're playing make-believe. We're pretending like, uh, like this would actually happen in the narrow. Um, whose opinion matters more to you? What, what if next time you wore something and your mom said, ew, that, that's like such an ugly shirt. Why? That's, an, uh, that's a weird, ugly shirt. And then you come to TNN and your crush is like, oh, I really like that shirt. <laughs> Sorry, mom. It's over, right? I don't, you might think it's ugly. I'm not saying that this is what you should do necessarily. You should listen to your parents. So that's not the point. But the point is you definitely care more about, and then now flip it. Let's say your mom really likes it. Okay, let's just go with it. This is maybe more realistic, right? Your mom, oh honey, I, I bought this for you. It looks so good. And then your crush says, what are you, what are you wearing? Ew. Okay. You ever going to wear that again? I don't think so. I just don't think so. At least not in the air. You might sleep in it or something. I don't know. Because you care more about their opinion than your mom's opinion, probably. That's kind of what he's saying here. But instead of your mom and your crush, he's talking about people in general and God. It's like, okay, if God said, this is a good thing, I want you to do it. And everybody said, ew, why are you doing that? That's so weird. Uh, or make it worse, I'll never be friends with the person who does that. Okay, someone might say that. But God says, yeah, this is what I want you to do. Then it's like, okay, well, now, now the ball's in your court. What are you going to do? Are you going to do what God says? Or are you going to say, well, my friends won't like me anymore if I do that? Proverbs 19.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare or a trap, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. Better for you to fear God and say, well, I'm, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do than to fear what people think and other people's opinions. Luke 12, 4 and 5 say something very similar, just to a greater extent. It says what the danger is in fearing man. Proverbs 29 says there's a trap, there's a snare, it's dangerous. And Luke 12, Jesus says what the danger is. Here's the danger. He says, I tell you, don't fear those who can kill the body, people who might oppose you or, or scare you. 
It says, and after that, they have nothing more they can do. Even if someone killed you, that's all they can do. But I will warn you of him whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed, he also has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's who you should be more afraid of. And that might sound like, well, I, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to be liked. It's like, okay, you have to choose from the outset. And I want you to think through today. What is more important to me? I need to choose. Following Jesus is more important. So that when, and, and the reason they say think about that now is when push comes to shove, you'll just likely do whatever you thought about before. You'll likely act in a way that you have been thinking in a way that you've been doing before. If you're thinking now, like, okay, I can think of times where my friends might not like me obeying God. My friends might not like me telling them to stop using God's name in vain. They might not like that. They also might not like me not, you know, partaking in their, their crude jokes. They might not like that. So let me decide now, okay, this is what God wants me to do. Okay, this, this is what it, okay, great, got it, boom, done. It's in my mind. Now, when it presents itself, think you're going to have a little bit more power to do the right thing. If you thought through ahead of time, what's most important? Because if not, you might just kind of go with the flow. The scary thing from this passage is these people decided, nope, I'm going to be a people pleaser, not a Jesus follower. Verse 44, the last thing he, Jesus said is he cried out and said, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. You're really believing in the Father. You're really believing in God, the God you say you worship to the Jews. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Says, I've come into the world as light. I'm like a light. I've already said I'm the light of the world. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You don't have to remain in your sin. You don't have to remain in the, the, all the consequences of your sin. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him, which is a weird statement. He says, I don't, I'm not pronouncing a judgment on you right now. He says, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's my primary mission here. He says, the one who rejects me does not receive my words has a judge. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, they got a judge. Who is the judge? My words that I've spoken. It's weird. It's like, oh, that's the judge. What Jesus already said is going to judge these people on the last day. It's like if your parents told you, hey, you can't have, you can't have the cookies we just baked. You cannot have the cookies we just baked. Hey, we just made sugar cookies. <laughs> or that's weird. Um, chocolate chip cookies or Christmas cookies. We just baked those. You can't have those. Don't have those. Don't have those. And then if you have them, you know what your parents might do? And your parents might say, what did I just say? And you have to say, well, don't have the sugar cookies, right? And what do you do? You repeat back the words that they said. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, I've given you these words. And guess what the judge is? Ultimately, the judge in that situation is not even your parents. It's what they said. It's like, I already said this. You already know that that was the wrong thing. So on the last day, what's the judge for these people who heard Jesus and rejected him? It's like they're going to have to tell Jesus, well, you said I could b believe and have life, and I didn't do that. I mean, imagine having that conversation with Jesus after rejecting him. That's what he's saying here. It's like the words I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Then verse 49, he makes it super clear. I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Now, you say, okay, so what's the, what's the, the essence? What's the, what's the commandment? What is the thing that... Jesus was supposed to say, what is it? What's the main thing? Verse 50, this is the commandment. I know that his commandment is two words, eternal life. That was the commandment. 
That's what I came to do. And what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I'm just doing what God said. And what he told me to say was, you can have life if you believe in me. Point number four. Last point here. Don't ignore Jesus' offer of life. Don't ignore it. If you ignore it, you will be like these people in verse 38, in verse 40, from the book of Isaiah promised long ago, who heard God's words, said, nope, I don't want to do that. And then God said, fine, I will harden your heart then. I will make it harder for you to embrace it. I think the scariest thing when I talk to students is like, uh, when I talk to you guys about why some of you aren't Christians, some of you say, well, I want to become a Christian when I'm older. And I guess I can understand that. And I kind of thought something similar um, with you. But the problem is I saw a lot of my friends say that who were right along with me in junior high. A lot of them said that too. But the problem is it was like you're playing with God's patience here if you know the gospel and understand it. Okay? If you really understand the gospel and you're just putting it off. I'm not talking if you don't get any of this. If you don't get any of this, then, then let's talk about that. But I'm talking about you, you guys who really, you get it. I mean, you understand, you know. But you're not doing anything about it. The more you push it off, you might say, well, I might not die until I'm 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. That might be true. But you know what might happen next year? God might harden your heart. And he might give you over to it. Said, so fine, you wanted that? Fine, take it. That's what God does very often. Romans chapter 1. Verse 24 says that these people who lived in, in the lust of their heart, which is this word that means that their desires to do everything that was bad. God said, fine. You want that? Do it then. Do it. Fine. And he gives them over to that. And they're, they're judged for all, for all their sin. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9. It's a verse you're going to look at in small groups. I want you to write it down. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. It talks about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. And it says, he'll come back inflicting vengeance or revenge on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. There is a sense where it's like, okay, we're supposed to obey this. It's like a command. What's the command? It's to believe, right? It's not to do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that you got to earn all this stuff, but his commandment is to believe. That is what his commandment is. Sometimes, you're in class and a teacher gives you a test, right? And they give you a test and they say, hey, you should study. And maybe they go over things that you should study. Those of you that are in training are like, this just happened. Yes, it did just happen yesterday. And imagine a teacher gives you all these instructions for a test and you're there in class and you're like, okay, taking the notes and maybe you're not paying attention. Maybe you're not knowing what's going on really. And then class is over. Bell rings or they turn off the Zoom thing, right? And it's over. And you're like, wait a minute. What's on the test? I wasn't paying attention. And at that point, it's like, well, the time to talk to the teacher's over. Right? Maybe they said, hey, don't email me. I'm not going to help you. The time's over. The time's done. You've received the instructions. Now all that's left is the test. That's basically what happens here. Jesus gives them the instructions, and then he leaves. He's done. He goes away. All that's left for these people is the test. You know, this might be the last sermon you ever hear from me or anybody else. It might be. I don't know. And I want you to, for a minute, think like it is. Like, this is it. This is, this is, this is it. You've received the instruction. You, you heard what Jesus said. Believe. 
What are you going to do? These people, most of them won't see Jesus again until he's dying on the cross. Some of them won't even see him then until he's resurrected. And some of them till never again. Don't ignore Jesus' offer of eternal life. I really don't want you to ignore that. And if you want to talk about that, make sure you, I want you to talk to your leader, talk to your parents, or talk to me or somebody about that because that's the most important thing ever. Let's pray. God, we know that you say that you harden people's hearts when they don't embrace you. So I pray that that would not happen. Pray, please help these students from hardening their hearts. Please open their hearts. Please break their hearts if you have to so that they can see their need for you and see that they, they need to see you as king and they need to recognize you as the boss more than anything else. Pray that we see that. You'd open our eyes and that you would be gracious and merciful and, and let us come to you and let us be forgiven, please. I know that's more important than anything else we could ever do in our entire lives because that's what you sent your son here to do, to proclaim that to us so that we could hear it and that we could trust in him. For those who have trust in him, I just, I know that for us, we, we know what it is to be forgiven and saved, and I just thank you for that. I pray that more students here in this room who are listening to my voice right now, I pray that they would ask you as well, and that they would know what it means to be forgiven too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.